Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. This week, we're going to hear from Alice Hunt Friend, a senior fellow in our international security program and an expert in the world of civil-military relations. One example of this area is in the Trump administration's cabinet, with military figures taking on civilian roles in government. It's not something unique to the Trump administration, but it's been particularly noticeable in its hiring of former generals in James Mattis and John Kelly to head up the Departments of Defense and Homeland Security, as well as active-duty Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor. It's part of what could be a worrying trend, where the U.S. military, sworn to serve whoever's in office, could end up becoming politicised. We begin by discussing how much of an issue having a military-heavy cabinet is. So I think the important thing to think about is why we think of these as civilian positions in the first place. And it has to do with this concept of civilian control of the military. So in particular in our system, the President of the United States is also the Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces. And the next person in um, the chain of command is the Secretary of Defense, who is also by design and by law uh, supposed to be a civilian. And in fact, by law, uh, if he served or she served in the armed forces at a senior level, that person should have been retired for a minimum of seven years, right? So we have this ideal of civilians controlling the military. Why? Um, Because we're a democracy and because we choose our elected leaders and because we want the military to um, to be democratically controlled by the democratic process, right? And the civilian is the one who is elected by the democratic process, as opposed to grown up in an institution that is hierarchical, um, that is under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and that is in the chain of command like the military is. So we care about these positions being civilian for sort of core reasons of maintaining our democracy. And, but I mean, what people would say, you know, what better person to run, say, the Department of Defense than someone who... Uh, knows everything there is to know about uh, military issues. So this also gets into what is military expertise and what is civilian expertise, right? And why would you want a civilian to run the Department of Defense? And why would you want the president to be a civilian, for example? Why wouldn't you want the president to be an active duty four-star general, right? So one of these reasons is that the military institutions as institutions focus on military matters and military expertise. They are operational and tactical experts in the use of violence and in the use and the tools of violence. Uh, And we want them to be those experts and we want them to maintain that expertise. Civilian expertise is much broader. Uh, It should encompass some understanding of what the military tool is for and what it can be used for um, and how it can be used, but it also is connected to broader political objectives and broader strategic objectives. So you'd see a civilian come into these jobs, not just with hopefully some either military background or military expertise, but also some expertise in the law. Perhaps they've spent some time in higher education. Um, They've themselves perhaps been in business. They have been around politicians for a long time. They've been around Washington for a long time. You know, a great example of that is Secretary Gates um, from the Bush and Obama administrations. He had a variety of jobs around Washington. He'd had a major academic position. 
uh, he had been around politics for a very long time, and so he had this very expansive understanding of the domestic political context, the international strategic context. He had expertise in intelligence. He understood the Hill really well. He understood the White House really well. These are the kinds of expertise you want in these jobs in order to wield the military instrument in a large strategic context and in a way that's sensitive to domestic political realities. We don't want our military to focus on those things. We want our military to focus on being a military. And if you spend 30, 40 years in the military and become an expert in military operations and tactics, you by necessity aren't going to be an expert in domestic politics, nor should you be asked to be an expert in domestic politics. So part of the reason we uh, have concerns about uh, folks coming out of an entire career of the military and being plopped into these political positions is because it's asking them to learn something on the job that their counterparts in the civilian world would already understand and be fluid in and perhaps be more immediately able um, to sort of swim in that stream, but also more immediately able to manage the military's role in that wider context. The second reason we, we um, want civilians to be in those civilian roles is because what you don't want to happen is you don't want your military to become another political constituency. Because if folks are rolling straight out of being senior military commanders into being members of a, a partisan faction, being part of a political party, uh, what you're going to start seeing is um, entire services start wondering, well, you know, are we all sort of rolling into parties and does that mean we identify with a party? And if a service or all the services identify with one party or the other, or, you know, another scenario is one service identifies with one party and one service identifies with another party, what you see is instead of a situation where the military services as a whole uh, feel solidarity with the country and with a government, they start to feel solidarity with a particular political party inside the country. And you can think of all the reasons why that would be problematic. You want the folks with the expertise in violence to have loyalty to the government, period, full stop. Doesn't matter who's in the White House. If it matters who's in the White House to the military, then you have a whole series of cascading problems about control of the military, about what the military does, about how it responds to political direction. Uh, 2016 campaign raise any flags for you. I mean, there were very prominent on both sides prominent former military figures stumping for candidates. Yeah, the other thing to keep in mind is that these are dynamics that develop over time. So this becomes a trend as opposed to any one particular event or one particular person um, suddenly ch turning the, the military services on a dime into a, a um, political constituency. That's not how it works. Um, and so certainly there were things during the 2016 campaign that alarmed me, but there had been things alarming me and others for a long time before that. Um, the idea of retired general and flag officers, so generals and admirals, endorsing political candidates started at least in the late 80s, uh, right, with the George H.W. Bush campaign, and then really caught everyone's attention during the Bill Clinton uh, political presidential campaign. Um, and it's been a problem ever since. There are a couple of analysts that refer to it as an arms race. Um, and in this last cycle, you saw um, the Trump campaign come out with its list of 88 retired four-star, well, not all four-stars, but re retired general and flag officers. Uh, and then the Clinton campaign the very next day said, well, we have 95, you know, and they both were sort of brandishing their lists. 
Um, and again, this is problematic because it suggests uh, not only to retired military officers, but to those still in the service, um, that it is okay to express partisan political preferences. And if we start, when we have started down that slippery slope, you might get to a point where it's not just the retired folks that think that's okay. Um, Heidi Urban, who is someone that was uh, at our conference this past week, has done this really interesting recent research about active duty um, members of the military expressing partisan political preferences uh, on social media and how the military profession, which is traditionally apolitical and nonpartisan, how they grapple with that. Because if you start hearing from active duty members of the force that they have political preferences, you can imagine that politicians might start having trouble trusting the advice and the loyalty they would get out of the service. Um, and that's a terribly dangerous thing. It's not at all um, happening today. It's not a huge problem today. You still, on the main, have a nonpartisan, apolitical military force. Um, but what folks like myself and others are seeing is is courting this this danger, courting this possibility that we're going to politicize a military uh, whose very professionalism and expertise rests on the idea of uh, non-political military operational focus that behaves the same way to every president and every party no matter what, because these are questions of national security which shouldn't have a partisan bent. It, it doesn't seem to me that servicemen and women or, or officers having political leanings is something new, um, but is it something that is, say, being more and more expressed? And if it is that way, what does that actually look like in a policy context or, say, a mission execution standpoint? So that's certainly an important point, which is obviously uh, members of the armed forces who have signed up to serve our country can still have their own personal political views. They vote. Um, they're full citizens. So no one who's a civil military relations expert is asking um, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, and members of the Coast Guard to not have personal views as a member of our democracy. Um, and there's not any evidence so far that I'm aware of that personal views matter. What matters is if we start to see all of these views aggregate into institutional positions, right, which we have not seen yet, to be clear. But the reason it's so problematic to have the most senior officers, the retired general and flag officers, making partisan statements and perhaps influencing how folks that served under them who are still active duty are thinking is because it gives this impression that not only are they speaking for themselves, but they're speaking for the entire institution of the Marine Corps or the Air Force or the Department of Defense or the military as a whole. And the reason that's a problem is because if we can't trust an entire institution to be nonpartisan, um, then you might have this sort of more long-lasting sense um, by politicians from the other party, whichever party it is, that my military isn't with me because I'm on the other side, right? Um, and so that's what we look for. We don't so much look for uh, individuals, but we do look at are all of these individual preferences aggregating to a point where you can say meaningfully, on average, Marines have this political ideology and they express it publicly and they use their 
personal beliefs and tie it to their military expertise to advocate for politicians or political causes, right? That's when there's a problem. And to your question about whether or not it's a problem operationally um, or for particular um, military campaigns, the reason it's a problem is because it might uh, poison the relationship between political leaders and senior military advisors. Um, if you're the president or you're the national security advisor and you're a civilian and you are an avowed Democrat or a Republican and you think that in general the officers are opposed uh, not only to your particular ideology but to the very idea that your party is in power, you're going to be extremely suspicious about the advice you receive from those people, right? Because you're going to be constantly worried that the advice is colored by their desire to see you no longer in power. That's why this is a problem. Again, I don't think this is actively happening. I think we've had episodes in our history where it has happened. But I, I think that's why some of us are ringing the bell early, because we're saying, wait, wait, wait. Um, this will be a problem not just sort of generally for um, sort of the climate in Washington and the climate in the larger society, but it'll be a problem for making real national security decisions. It'll be a problem for use of force choices. Um, you know, if a president thinks that the military is giving their advice in order to score domestic political points as opposed to best military advice that's going to be able to achieve the national objectives that the civilians have set, then, of course, you're going to have a whole series of cascading problems because you're going to get civilians making decisions without that um, expertise, that operational and tactical expertise that they rely on the military to provide. I, I know this is probably a larger question, but maybe we could touch upon it. The idea of where politicization comes in and socialization comes in, I think right now it's probably the least, the military is the least connected to the, the rest of the population than ever before. I think there's different calculations of that, but it's say like I think like one percent are have have any connection to the military or are in the military. I'm not sure what the, the proper um, stats are there. So how does that bear into the politicization? If 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 it's less and less, if the military is less and less a part of the wider American uh, whole. Then does that mean that you know it can become a, it it has is more in danger of becoming its own political constituency in that sense. Oh, there's so many different issues there. So yes, the, the estimate is that about 1% of the country serves. Um, there are a lot of folks that point out that uh, that 1% is connected to a far greater number of people so that even if you personally have not served, you might be a family member of someone who served, your best friend might have served, um, you might work for a company uh, that does business with the Defense Department. Um, you, like myself, might be a civilian who's worked in the Defense Department. Um, so the number is more like maybe 10% is, is some estimates of Americans who either have served or have a direct relationship with people who serve um, or with the, the military as an institution. That said, that's still only 10%, right? So that's 90% of the country that has sort of no direct personal experience with the United States military. Um, and there are all kinds of possible effects of that. Um, one of them is this idea of who serves, um, who's responsible for national service, who's responsible for defending the country when necessary. Um, 
you know, the military oath as service is fundamentally different from other types of service. I was an AmeriCorps volunteer for a year, um, but I could have quit at any time. Uh, and I didn't say, I didn't raise my right hand and, and submit myself to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, right? Um, and so if I had wildly disagreed with the direction that our, you know, nonprofit that we worked for was going in, um, I couldn't have walked out or I couldn't, I, or I could have walked out and argued with them. If I was in the military, you can't do that. If you don't agree with the invasion of Iraq, doesn't matter, you're going, right? Um, because that's the deal. And so when you only have a small sliver of the population that has that kind of relationship to the government um, and everyone else sort of outsources it to that population, you get some distorted social relationships between those two groups. Um, and you also get some distorted concepts about what it is to use force, right? I think the last 16 years of war have really taught us that the United States can go to war now and much of the population doesn't feel any really profound effect from that. They watch it on the news. Yeah, war you know? is something that happens outside America. And it happens to other people, right? It happens to other people's children. Um, and it it leads to all sorts of misconceptions as well. Um, somebody uh, on one of our panels the other day, um, one of our um, panelists who's on, in active duty, said that when he gives talks, he often gets sort of two different kinds of people coming up to him. One uh, says, thank you so much for your service, um, but sort of uh, conveys not really understanding what the service is or meant or, or kind of uh, what his particular uh, background and expertise and experience is, right? But this sort of vague general sense of gratitude, right? Um, and then the other one is people coming up apologizing, saying, I'm so sorry for what you've been through. Isn't it terrible that we made you do that? And he said sort of both expressions show this, you know, sort of fundamental misunderstanding um, of what it is he does and why he does it and how he feels about his own service. Um, and so we sort of lost the nuance there. Um, Corey Shockey and Jim Mattis uh, edited this fantastic book for which they also commissioned a bunch of survey work on the American public to find out what the American public thinks of and knows about their military. And they found that the American public is incredibly supportive of the military. Everyone supports the troops, right? But when you start asking them questions about their knowledge and expertise on the military, there's not much there. Um, you know, up to 34% of folks, um, when asked a specific question about sort of um, military law or use of force decisions, uh, check don't know, unsure. Um, and that's a pretty high number. Um, and so, you know, those of us that do this think about that a lot. What does it mean to have this really broad support that's sort of unquestioning and is possibly unquestioning because they don't even know enough to know what questions to ask. What does that mean for how we're going to use force in the future? What does it mean for the kinds of commitments we're going to make with our military forces, with that 1 to 10 percent of the population, um, and how we're going to monitor them, and how we're going to rely on them, and how we're going to resource them, and how many of our resources to put towards them, um, to sort of fundamentally not understand any of those things and to sort of allow that to continue, right? To be comfortable with, well, I understand that we pay you, 
uh, and I have a lot of other things in my life, and so I'm I'm just going to sort of let somebody else manage that problem set. Um, you know, to have that attitude towards our military that we will send abroad to use deadly force on other populations uh, is a problem for our democracy, and it's also a problem for our relationship with those forces who know that they're being sent abroad in some cases without the American public really understanding where they're being sent or why. Um, finally, I mean, we've talked about these kind of yellow flags, not quite red flags, we, where the canary is, is still alive. It's not quite, <laughs> yeah. it's not quite Turkey and, and <laughs> Egypt uh, just, now, just yet. Um, but if you were to arrest this trend, um, you know, where, where, where should you start? Oh, I always start with civilians. So uh, civil military relations geeks focus a lot on the military and the military itself, of course, focuses on itself. Um, and the military is really the, the side of this equation that thinks the most about these issues, that teaches it in professional military education courses. Some folks argue not enough, but they in fact do get coursework and reading on it. Um, most civilians who go into um, mid-level and senior uh, positions where they are part of civilian control of the military um, haven't thought a lot about about these issues. You know, haven't read their Samuel Huntington, or if they have, they've only read a few pages, as one of our uh, panelists said the other day. Um, you know, haven't been through this uh, real struggle between how to elicit best military advice, how to give the military good guidance, what the civilian responsibility is. Uh, in the policymaking relationship when it comes to military policy, and then certainly haven't thought about politicization issues. So a lot of the time when we talk about politicization, it's not just that these retired admirals and generals are sitting around one day thinking, you know, I think I'll go endorse a political campaign, right? Political campaigns go out and look for them. Um, members of Congress, you know, go out and look for um, folks in uniform to validate their own positions on things. And it is a very thin tightrope to walk for both civilians and the military, but I think civilians need to learn more and think more about these issues. Um, so, you know, I think the place to start really at this point is with civilians that work on political campaigns, civilians who have been in RN or aspire to high political office, folks on the Hill, so that they understand um, when they ask somebody wearing a uniform to make a comment about something political, particularly something partisan, right? Because there's politics, which is to say de decisions about resources and, and policy. And then there's politics, partisanship. Um, when they are asked to make a comment on that, that's putting them in the wrong position. And that has a whole uh, series of consequences. Um, and, and risks to politicizing the force, which we absolutely do not want to do. Um, and this is like a mutually assured destruction scenario too, right? We don't want to politicize the force either way. You don't actually want to start politicizing the force if you think they're going to be on your side, because that's just going to induce the other side to start doing the same thing. Uh, and the last thing we want is to be fighting over the political loyalty of the force. Their loyalty is to the country and the Constitution, period, full stop, and it doesn't matter who's in the White House. And that was Alice Hunt Friend bringing us to the end of our show. We'll be back with more next week. So until then, if you have any feedback on the show, please get in touch. I'm on Twitter, and you can find me on email at cquinn at csis.org. As always, thanks for listening.